house cleaning right here. Just give me a minute. Good morning. I am uh, so pleased to be with you this morning. Thanks to Jim for your introduction. Uh, my name is Steve Bateman. I haven't been here forever. I've um, been here for quite a while. Kim and I uh, attend Living Water here. We came back to the area in 2014 and uh, this is where we landed and we haven't left. So I'm very, very happy to be amongst you this morning. Um, also to the group at home, thanks for joining us. The, um, you know, it's a really a great privilege to be able to share God's words with, with folks. And I have been blessed to be able to be a pastor in my past. Uh, for about three and a half years, I pastored a small church in Lancaster, South Carolina. Um, my work brought me back up here to Pennsylvania where we grew up, right in the Harrisburg area, about three miles from the church here. And um, i got to be candid with you, I was nervous about this sermon. Not the same sort of nervousness that I usually feel when coming into the pulpit, because no man or woman should come into the pulpit and not feel a bit of apprehension with regard to what that requires of them. But my nervousness wasn't quite the same. I, I don't have any problem speaking in front of people. That doesn't bother me. I am very concerned that I do honor to the word, but last night after I was done preaching, I thought, you know, something just didn't feel right about that. So there's two times in my preaching career that I have rewritten my sermon. Um, this is one of them. And so I'll I tell you what the difficult thing is within it. A couple of things have happened to me over the last 24 hours, and I'm laying in bed this morning. And I, I honestly feel like I hear from God saying, look, Steve, just tell him your story. And I hate that. I mean, you know, a lot of people like to come up and talk about themselves, and I, I have great respect for that, but I don't. 
I really don't like to talk about me. It makes me feel vulnerable, and I don't like to feel vulnerable. So I'm thinking God really wants to kind of push me ahead and, and share some of my experience with you. The hope here really is that you can kind of connect with that experience with your own so that I can kind of share with you God's story in me and my experiences in him, and you can kind of get on to that, and perhaps together we can progress toward a deeper experience in his son, Jesus Christ. Fair enough? Let's see how it goes, all right? Um, if you will, I'm going to pray before I get started, and um, you'll hear me pray for me, then for you, and then for God, and off we go. So join me if you will. Father, I do just, Lord, thank you for this opportunity, and I pray with everything that I can muster within myself, that, Lord God, I honor you in what is about to take place. That nothing that I do impedes upon the work of your Spirit for the men and women that are gathered here, that they might experience you in ways in which then they leave this place. They are better for having been here. And we measure better, Lord, in the sense of how much they love you and how much they experience your love for them. I pray, dear God, that, that you will indeed have your way, and I trust in your faithfulness that even if I do fumble the ball forward, it goes forward by your grace. And I ask and pray for your blessings upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Romans 6, uh, chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 14. And uh, we're going to change directions a little bit in the book as you start reading it, you'll see what Paul's approach has been up to this point. You know, he starts us there in chapter 1, which is typically where you would expect a book to start. And he has some introductory remarks, and then he gets to the theme verse, which really gives us a sense of Romans in and of itself. Okay? He gets us to this place where, um, you know, he talks about, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and, to, and then to also to the Greek. But in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And from there he goes on. In chapter 1 he says how important it is for Gentiles to be saved. Chapter 2, he talks about how important it is for Jews to be saved. Chapter 3, he talks about how important it is for everyone to be saved, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 4, he talks about the importance of a faith in Christ and how important that is to our salvation experience. Chapter 5 talks about how the grace extends from the work of Christ, which is ours. And we ought to live in it, which is where he takes us then in chapter 6. And when we live in that grace, we discover its ability to overcome our sin. Chapter 7 talks about how that grace overcomes the law. And chapter 8 talks about how that grace overcomes everything. And we are more than conquerors. And then I'll let you figure out the rest of the book from there. I just wanted to give you some context. Because where Paul is going here is in that territory of grace and how important it is to live out our salvation experience. He's going to talk about sanctification. Sanctification is the natural response to salvation. Salvation is a one-time event where we are justified, declared righteous. But after that, we have to live out that experience 
in what we call our sanctification. I thought I would really work hard to kind of unpack all these things with regard to sanctification and make sure you were on the same page as I am. I figured that would take too much time, so let me just give you a definition. <clears throat> it's out of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. You'll like the definition. Because they write that sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. See, as I said, you know, sanctification is the natural response to our salvation. You can hear it in the scriptures if you listen closely to them. You know, there's very famous passages that we sort of hang our hat on, the ones that we, we know well, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Listen to how it's written. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, right? It's the gift of God. That's salvation. It's by grace you got a gift. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walking is a continuous event. And the good works we're talking about is what happens as an expression of our salvation. We live differently. We've been changed, regenerated. The old is gone, the new has come, and this is how we live it out in sanctification. You can also hear it in Philippians when he writes there. All we did is reverse the order, if you will, because Paul writes, <clears throat> Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See what happens when Paul's saying, work out your own salvation. He's talking about sanctification. We participate in the process. There's things we got to do. But the good news that it's God who's working in you to bring that about. He started it. He promised to bring it through to completion. And that's where our confidence resides in one day being as his son. You know, we're created in the image and that's where we're heading. So sanctification. You with me on that? No more to talk about it. Got it. Come on, Steve. We're saints. We understand this. Just move on. Got it. Okay, good. <clears throat> So if you are with me, let's rise together and we'll read our passage and progress forward from there. Again, I am in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. You can pull it up on an app or if you have a Bible, you need one. There's one there in the aisles. Paul begins his writing this way. He says, what shall we say then? Or do we continue into sin and that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus uh, have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. Alive to God, rather, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though who have been, those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. You may be seated. <clears throat> Now, it's kind of difficult when you start into a chapter and the first thing you have is a question. What shall we say then? Shall we stay in sin that might grace abound? No way. But where did that come from, right? You do have to track back a little bit to last week's sermon with Pastor Ben where he talked about chapter 5. And in there, there was a statement that was made that Paul wanted to go back and kind of get to be certain that nobody was misunderstanding. What he wrote there in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what's going on there is kind of interesting. Remember we talked about how he said all the Gentiles need to be saved and then all the Jews need to be saved, right? What he talked about with the Gentiles being saved is there was something in their conscience that told them the difference between right and wrong. They didn't have Moses, right? All they had was this conscience and yet they couldn't deny the truth it was all around them and the fact that there was a God and there was a difference between right and wrong but then the Moses came in and the law came in and increased the trespass and that did increase grace and here's how I think that works when I was a kid I had a liking for ice cream and so what would happen is on occasion when I would come home from school and there'd be a half a gallon of ice cream I felt that it was incumbent upon me to eat that right nobody said I couldn't and so I would partake and then when dinner came and I wasn't hungry my mom would say what's up well you know and then she said did you eat the ice cream it's like yeah I, I kind of ate the ice cream I knew it wasn't the right thing to do but she never told me I couldn't so then she says okay Stevie she called me Stevie she says Stevie don't you dare eat that ice cream again before dinner now, if I came home the next day and I decided that it was still a good idea to eat the ice cream, do you see now that it's not only my conscience which is in play, but also the law? And if I choose to eat the ice cream, the trespass has increased, right? And if mom forgave me, well, I kind of increased the grace too, right? And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, you know, Shall we continue to sin so that the grace gets greater? And you and I might think of that question and say, well, that doesn't make a lick of sense. But you've got to be careful. It's not as rhetorical as you might first think because we're seeing it today. Right? I mean, in the church experience, our mainline churches, you know, that are redefining the boundaries of what sin is, right? They are just expressing love to others and explaining to them that you don't need to repent of what the Bible clearly says is a sin. And they do that on the hopes that these folks will come into their fellowship, there in that fellowship to experience the grace of God. Truth be told, they sin so that grace might abound. 
I had the same experience in my own church walk. You know, early on in my church's experience, well, not even early on, probably just as, as short as 10 or 20 years ago, huh, um, I was part of the Seeker Church movement. Are you familiar with it? You know, the, the, the premise behind the Seeker Church movement was that the church is the hope of God. Therefore, we need to create a church for the unchurched. And as members of that church, our objective is to engage our, our neighbors where they are and invite them into church so that they can experience the grace of God and perhaps hear the gospel there. But it changes the dimensions of what the church experience really is. First, church needs to be entertaining, right? Secondly, you've got to be a bit more like your neighbor if you have any hope of engaging them, right? So we begin to make decisions. Can we sin a little if it means being, making a connection with our neighbors so that they, we can invite them into church and they can see that Christians aren't these stuffy old fuddy people, but they're cool just like you're cool. And you can be a Christian and cool at the same time. I do remember in our small group's discussion, there was some idea of can we not throw a keg party for our neighborhood? We drink beer, they drink beer. What's wrong with beer? But, you know, you're, you're, you're coming up against some areas there where you cross over those thresholds and you actually just decide that it's okay to sin a little if indeed we can get people into church and there they can experience the abundant grace of God. See, the, the problem is the premise. The problem is, is that the church is really not the hope of, God, of the world. Christ is the hope of the world. And the objective of the church is to help you fall more deeply in love with him, not with them, right? So that's, that's, it's not a rhetorical question. And we have to understand that it requires a change of direction in our lives, uh, a reboot on everything that we think about the way we operate in the world. And then once we are saved, we have to live that out. And that's what Paul was saying in the first four verses. Four verses. Look at them again with me and see what he's saying. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What Paul is saying, look, if you have identified with Jesus Christ and you have died with him in this proclamation of baptism, right, then the old man is gone. He's dead. And you show through the coming up out of the water that you are going to live in Christ. You, you, you've died in him. You're going to live in him. So how can you do all that and never have changed and still live like you did before the change? Doesn't make any sense. And that's how he tees up what I believe we talk about when talking about what we mean to walk in newness of life. And I'm going to give you three points and I'm going to try to hit them quickly of what it takes to walk in newness of life. And here are the three things. First, you need to die in Christ. Secondly, you need to live in Christ. 
And thirdly, you need to live to God. So let's talk about what we mean when we talk about dying in Christ. It starts here in verses 5 through 7. For if, for if we live, or excuse me, if, for if we have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see what's happening in there with regard to what transpires when we die in Christ? That we are released from the, the, the grasp of sin. But prior to this, we have no choice but to be firmly in its grip. You know, we talk a lot about identity these days. You can't be alive and not hear about it, right? People, by nature, want to figure out the answer to the big question, who am I? And they take their cues oftentimes from the groups that they're around. They, they truly want to be able to capture that identity. That's the nature of, of, of our being. You know, I, I, I get it. I mean, I started out just like you do. Who am I? The answer comes from your family, doesn't it? You know, you're born into a family. There's parents. There's siblings, maybe. And you want to fit in, right? So you begin to capture the, the identity that you have by virtue of the people around you. And that was my experience, likely yours as well. In fact, you can probably look at who you think you are today and trace it back to some of those early family experiences. Do you think I'm wrong? It's true. So let me tell you a little bit about my experiences with family to begin to talk in terms of what it means to have this sort of identity. Right? So I'm the youngest of four boys. Uh, my mom was a single mom. My dad left the scene probably when I was about nine. That made my oldest brother somewhere in the territory of about 17. And then my two middle brothers were about uh, six years older than I am. So that would have put them at about 14 or 15. And um, I just wanted to be like them. Who wouldn't, right? But all three of my brothers were over six foot tall, like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, my my, one of them was 6'7", you know? And so here's how I characterize the Bateman family. These are some big boys. There's some bad boys, right? Everybody knows them. You don't mess with them, right? They might be uh, doing some things that people don't like, but son of a gun, they're thick as thieves. You, nobody's going to mess with them, and I want to be a part of that, right? So you should have seen me at this age, man. I'm, I'm dressing cool, right? I got hair pretty long. Yeah, that's <laughs> a funny thing. Yeah, I got you. All right. <clears throat> I used to wear my, you know, the jeans before it was cool were ripped. It was just because now you can buy them that way. Yeah. I had a, a jacket that was a jean jacket. It had a big hole here, but I thought, man, that, looks me, that makes me look cool, you know. And I, I really, truly wanted to be like them, and I knew that what that meant was somehow or another I had to be bad. I had to be bad. I had to, I had to do things with this sort of threshold like, that's pretty bad, but it's not as bad as them. And if I get caught, I won't get in a lot of trouble. But I'm trying to kind of get caught up into that identity. I wanted to be one of them, right? It's, 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 how, we, it's how we roll. And I had a terrible experience in all of that. 
it felt like they didn't want me around. You know how it is with little brothers. Hey, can I go along? No, get out of here, right? But really where that hit the, hit, the, hit the nail on the head for me was one evening, and I probably was on the order of about 12 years old, so that would have made Harry somewhere around 21. And he was a cop, and, and I remember this, the two of us were in the house, and he still had his uniform on. Something was a little bit off about Harry, but we're sitting in the kitchen, small table, this old lamp that kind of casts this yellow thing around the, the room, you know, but it's sort of dark in the corners. And Harry and I are sitting there, and he looks at me, and he says, Stevie, you want a cigarette? I know, I said the same thing. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to smoke a cigarette with my brother. This is so cool. I'm being brought in, and this is a symbol of my being one with my family, right? I was, I was, I was, I, was, I remember it so vividly because of what I felt at the time, right? So he pulls out a cigarette, and he gives it to me, and I put it in my mouth, and he even lights it for me, right? And I swear to you, within a, within a heartbeat, his hand came out of somewhere and smashed that boy right up in my face. Embers are flying everywhere. I think there's tobacco down my teeth. And I'm like, what just happened? What just happened? And he said, Stevie, if I ever catch you smoking, I don't care where you are or who you're with, I'm going to do the same thing. Oh, my gosh. You know what my take was on that? You don't belong here. You're not a member of this family. And I, I, I was lost. Have you ever experienced that? The sense of rejection from the people that you love? You can't be like us? Well, what do you do with yourself when you can't be like the people that you want to be with like? It was hard. See, that's part of the problem that we have. We, we really do want to, to find our identity. We, we want to be a part of something else. We take our cues as to who we are by the people that are around us. And we have to die to that desire. We really have to just let that go. It keeps us from experiencing the fullness of Christ in our lives. But by grace, God was already at work in my life, even though I had no clue who he was and had no idea how it worked. And a second thing happened with Harry that began to set me on a different course. Harry had fallen in love with this beautiful girl named Joy, and she was pretty. And as a young, adolescent man, I was in, interested in how that all worked, right? And one of the coolest things that happened is I got to go with Harry and Joy to Tabernacle, right? It was, they were, she was a, a Mormon, okay? I had no clue. It didn't matter to me. I had no religion background. I just found something in that experience that stuck with me. Because when I went to the, to the church and I were there, do you know what they called each other? Brother and sister. Wow. Hey, there's something. I might not fit into this family, but there may be a family for me. Just a data point. Don't act upon it. But it's one of the things in looking back that you can see God at work. Steve, somewhere, maybe somewhere down the road, you can have a different family than this one. I like that. It's good. But again, I'm still trapped in my sin, doing my thing. But the data point was really important to me. 
It was so important because I knew that somehow or another a wonderful thing happened to me when I turned 21. I too had found a beautiful woman to fall in love with, my girlfriend, right? And she went to church. So where did I go? I started going to church. Now, don't misunderstand. I had no interest in church. But I had a lot of interest in her. And so we're young. Uh, I started dating Kim when I was 17. She was 16. Her family went to church. They were kind of normal. I liked that. I began this sort of a change in my identity, trying to be a bit more normal like them, going to church and so on and so forth. But something happened to me. I started thinking about getting married and having kids with Kim, and I was scared. I didn't have a dad that I could look up to. The brothers who I thought would be a reasonably good model of dad weren't very good either, and I had no clue what it meant to be a father. And so I went to this particular play, and they were talking about God and men, and some questions came out at the play. One of the first ones that the guy on the stage said is, are you being the very best man that you can possibly be? And then he went on to say, you know what? Whatever your answers are in your heart, God hears those answers. It's a prayer. I was scared because I knew I couldn't do anything other than pray if I answered the questions. And I don't know if I even knew how to pray. But something magical was happening in the moment. Because I answered, no, I'm not the best man I can possibly be. Are you being the best father, the best brother, the best son that you can possibly be? And the answer was no, and I have no clue how to do it. And God spoke to me. And I don't mean in an audible voice, but something in my past, I don't even know where it came from, said now's the time to ask God to come into your heart. That's a children's prayer, perhaps. And it happened. God saved me. I, 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 honestly, the, the sin that I was trapped in went away. I really, really felt like something new and wonderful had transpired in my life. You know, when I went back home, it took maybe just a day or two to get rid of the dirty magazines. It took me a couple weeks to get rid of the liquor. I had a greater fondness for it, perhaps. But I knew that these things were standing in the way of what I had experienced. I had died with Christ. The sin trap was gone, but I had no clue how to live in Christ. I talked to my pastor. He didn't know what happened to me. I talked to the people in church. They didn't get it. And then, on a November Thanksgiving service, an ecumenical service, if you will, where the newest pastor gets to speak, a guy came into the pulpit and he talked about salvation and I, I knew everything he was talking about and I got this strong sense that he knew everything I had gone through and I said, I'm going to that church. Because I needed somebody to help me understand what it meant to live in Christ. I knew I'd already died. I just was a bit clueless on that other side. That's the second thing that we need to do. We really need to, to identify with Christ and live in him. That's where we go with the next passage. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, the desire to be identifying with the group remains with you, whether you're saved or not. And so that's what I wanted. I came into this tiny church with a man who understood salvation. He thought it was imperative for him to teach me. He was surprised to discover that I already knew a lot about the Bible. But that was just by default. I'd never read it before, but I was saved. And whatever it was saying to me was really appealing to me, so I couldn't put it down. I didn't know what was going on, but I know this. I identified with the guy who wrote it, you know? And I wanted to know him more. And maybe there was a part of me that even really embraced this idea of father, you know? Because when you don't have a dad and you want a dad, there seems like there's a really good father out there and you'd like to get to know him more. And I was trusting that the church would help me in that endeavor. But I got to tell you something, as much as I loved God and as much as I was loving Jesus Christ, I wasn't real fond of the church folk. I just wasn't. I didn't get it. You know, I'm, I'm in this church, and they're supposed to be like me, wanting, wanting this deep and abiding relationship with Christ and to grow in that relationship. But instead, they were so enamored with themselves. You know, it was a small church. It was an old church, and Kim and I were young, so we were fresh meat. And it was a divided church, right, with a new pastor. So some of the folks didn't like the new pastor. Some of them did. So now you get to choose teams, right? And they're both wooing you onto their side. I didn't like any of it. I, I couldn't connect as much as I wanted to connect with, with one or the other, but to connect with one meant you did it to the detriment of the other. And I thought, this is nuts. This is nuts. And then I got onto the board. And I was a treasurer, and I loved our pastor. But the group that didn't like him got strategic. Let's just quit giving him money. I thought, that's fine. If we don't have money, I'm not paying the light bill. I certainly am paying the church, pastor, right? We're all going to suffer if you're being stupid. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that was going through my head, right? And then you get to this point of conflict. And it's like, I hate this experience. My pastor is grieving. He actually left the ministry and went back to painting houses. And frankly, I followed his lead. I thought, you know, if this is church, as much as I want to be a part of it, I really don't want to be a part of it. And I had a choice to make, either engage in the church or engage in something that made a lot more sense to me, which was work. And man, I understood the rules of work. And I could identify with that. Is anybody with me? in this concept of identifying with the workplace. Look, I had church people that were saying they're nice and they were cheating, but I know in work it's okay to cheat. That's part of the rules, right? Just win, win at all costs, right? And I, I just fell in love with it. I really, truly did. I, I worked really hard. I got my engineering degree. It took me 13 years. I'm a bit of a slow learner. I got that degree, and I really set my sights on a career path, and I did pretty well in it. I honestly did. As long as I was willing to, 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 to pay two things for that. One, I had to be willing to move my family. So Kim and I, with our children, moved up and down the East Coast because I discovered something. If you stay in the same company, you don't make as much money as if you leave and take another job elsewhere. They give you big raises with promotions. Staying in the same company was a slow process. And I was on fast track. I had gotten a late start. I'm going to pick it up. Right? But here was the problem. I was still a Christian. 
And it's very hard to play in the territory of the rules of business, the way I was being taught by my business leaders, and the rules of the Bible with regard to what's the right thing to do. So I found a compromise, right? What I'm going to do is I believe that the more authority and the more uh, power that I have in business positions me as a Christian to make greater influence in people's lives, right? So the justification for really what was all about me was it was all about you, right? Look, if you, if you have a job and you don't want to grow in your job, that's fine. You go somewhere else because I'm going to make this place a wonderful place where you can grow to be just like me, successful in your career. Thirty years I did that dance. There was a lot of tension in it. I had teased myself into thinking that it was okay to sin by wrapping it in some sort of virtuous wrapping, that it's all about you. But looking back, I know it was all about me. And people paid a price for what I wanted. Make no mistake. I know that you all are doing that same dance. I really, truly do. I mean, it's the, it's the common, I'm a Christian on Sunday, and Monday through Saturday, I'm somebody else, this bifurcated life. And it's a struggle. I know in my struggle, I coped. I just brought in some more sin into my life. It was stressful having this, you know, sort of, who am I? Uh, am I a business guy? Am I a Christian? What group do I identify with? And so you cope, right? You know, you do things that babies, you gave up years ago. You can almost justify it somehow that you're going to progress through till you finally get to where you think you want to be, Steve. You want to be the president of your own company. Then you don't have to worry about all this, who do I work for? You're the boss. Right? And God took me through that march of nearly 30 years till I almost got there. I was right up against the edge. I was working for a small manufacturer down in South Carolina and we were doing extremely well. Our businesses was off the rails, profitable. And the president said, I think I'm going to retire. And Steve, I think you're the guy for the position. Whoop. Can you imagine the amount of work I put into this to get to that place? I thought, man, this is it. I get the brass ring. I'm going to take it home with me. I'm going to get to be president. He didn't run this company very well, but I know I can. Off we go, right? And you know what happened a few months later? That bugger fired me. He fired me. He fired me. When you think about a crushing identities, here we go again. My first identity was crushed by my brother. You're not going to be a part of this family. My second was by some guy who said, we don't need you here anymore. And then something struck me. I've got to get this right. There is no living for work and living in Christ. There's just living in Christ. See, the problem is, is that we were never called to identify with a group. We've got that wrong. We were called to identify with a person. We weren't called to find our place in, in white conservative or liberal or whatever the case. That, none of that matters, honestly. And frankly, if you don't get what I'm saying, you're going to miss it. We were called to identify with a person, Christ. And when we 
subjugate him to that other identity, we are in grievous trouble. We are essentially saying, this is who I am. You know, I'm for this or I'm against that. And if you're not for what I'm for, then you're against me. And we batter his back and forth in our Facebook posts and our families as they fall apart because you like to wear a mask and I don't, so don't come to my party. That stuff is killing us. And it's all because somehow or another we're identifying with a group to the detriment of our identity in Jesus Christ. And worse, we do all that and then we say we're Christians. And so we're mean-spirited toward other people. We ignore the scriptures with regard to tell us how we ought to live. And then we tap onto it, sort of bolting into our own identity. Oh, and yeah, by the way, I'm for Christ. Jesus doesn't like to be number two to anything. And if you do that, isn't that the definition of idolatry? It took me 30 years to get it. But the way that I came to Christ in that personal one-on-one, it's about you and it's about me and it's about the love we ought to have for another, was the very same way I needed to march out my life in Christ. I had to kind of go through a reboot. I was out of work for five months. I had no idea who I was. I thought I was a businessman, but nobody else did. So I got out on my deck, and I recommitted my life to Jesus Christ. And I got rid of that old identity by saying to him, look, I'm no longer on my own. I'm no longer fighting for the career, making all these decisions which seem strategic to get me to where I want to be. From now on, I live solely for you. And I will share the gospel wherever you send me, but you pick the venue. I'm just for you. The parallels are amazing. It was just me and God through Christ, right? The same way it was when I got saved. Me and him and the Father. And that's the last part of what Paul is talking about. The concept of living in Christ isn't to stay there. The concept is to live in Christ to God. Don't you understand that? Let me read these um, these last verses for you. We must... Oh, here it is. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. I think I read this, didn't I? Yeah, let's move on to the next one. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin, to sin rather as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are under the, not under the law, but under grace. What Paul is saying here is that the life in Christ needs to parallel Christ's life. And that means you need to live to the Father just like he did. You know, we, 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 we make a lot of what Christ has done so that he would get to know us, Right? But we also have to live like he did to know him. And Christ, his love was first and foremost for the Father, not for you. And what he did was a result of his love 
for the Father. He says it. You know, he, says, he says, don't think I've come to do my own work. I'm just doing what I saw him do. I'm just doing what God tells me. I, I am following after what the Father has sent me to do. And we have to live the same way. We have to live to God and him alone. And we have to function that way in the territory of, of managing ourselves well and not giving ourselves over to do the wrong thing. But I think this is so hard for Christians. It's so hard because somehow or another we feel like we are paying a price in the pursuit of righteousness because we don't get to do what the world gets to do. And we may have even been taught that it's not right to think like the world. But I suggest to you that it is right to think about the things that the world thinks about when it comes to their aspirations. You just don't want to pursue them the way the world pursues them. One of the things I do in my work as a coach leader thing, which I don't know what it is and Jim doesn't know what it is, but that's beside the point. But one of the things I do is I get to work with Christian business leaders, okay? It's really, really sweet. And I'll tell you how I got there. But today, I am still in the workplace, but the essence of my work is faith-based. And I work with Christian business leaders so that they can live to God. I believe in my heart that as they do that, they will get better and it'll have a byproduct of the people that they work with getting better. And I believe God will bless that in the businesses that they will prosper so that their influence spreads. And what that requires of me at least once a month is to write some material toward that end. And I came across something this month that I thought was just really, really neat. It was out of the Neuro Leadership Journal, issue one from 2008. And some very smart guy had talked about what it is that motivates us. And he used an acronym of, uh, to get us to the point where we could remember it. He said, what motivates people in general is found in the acronym SCARF. He said that people genuinely want to have status. They want to stand out from their peers. And they will do what they do to get to that status. And if they fear that the status is in jeopardy, they will also motivate them to do things. Secondly is they want a sense of certainty, an ability to predict the future. If they want it, they're going to do things to get it. If they're afraid that it's going to be lost, they do things to protect it. Thirdly, is that in the area of autonomy, they want to be able to make decisions with a degree of freedom and ownership of their destiny as a result of those decisions. R has to do with relatedness. Do I fit in here? Do the people like me? Do they not like me? And the last one has to do with fairness. Will we be motivated toward believing that something is unfair and try to change it? Or will we fight for fairness? These are the things which motivate people. And I think they can motivate us as well. There's just a difference in how we get them. When I was a businessman and I wanted status, it really boiled down to symbols of status and the money to back it up. That's how the world works. But how does heaven work? How do we gain status in God's eyes. Is it possible? Sure. You want to be first? What do you got to do? You got to be a servant of all. You got to be last. That doesn't make sense to the world. But it should make sense to you and I because we're not of the world. Right? You, you, want, you want a sense of, of, of certainty? Those who God has given to Christ, no one can pluck them out of their hands. It's as good as done, right? 
autonomy, the freedom to make decisions based upon where you go and the destiny of thing, it's there. You can choose Christ or not. You pick them. Relatedness, this is interesting. We can be related with other Christians if we're all on the same sheet of paper. Not so much wondering whether or not you fit in with my group, but how are you doing in your fit in with Christ? And how can I help you there? Huh? Now we're all on the same sheet of paper. We understand that it's all about the Father, and we're just trying to help people get there through, through Christ, right? And how they relate to Him. Fairness. Fairness is a little difficult because the way God sees fairness is oftentimes kind of hard to picture. You remember the parable, right? Hired the guys first shift. They came in at nine, promised to give them a Daenerys. Hired another group at three. They went to work, paid the group at three first. They got a Daenerys, the group from first shift, saying, we're going to get more. And they didn't. It seems unfair even to you and I. But God says, you know, isn't it my money to do what I want with? Are you, are you just envious that I was being gracious to somebody else? And how do we really truly identify the fairness of the work of God through Jesus Christ at the cross? That somehow or another, the sins that I've committed and you've committed are all placed upon a man who was sinless, who did nothing wrong, and somehow all of my sins are his so that all of his righteousness is mine. Is that fair? Well, the Bible says that it is. I mean, it, it shows at one point the, the fairness of God, that sin has to have a penalty, and the love of God that he was willing to give his own son to pay for it. But what I'm trying to encourage you is to be okay with wanting the things that you want. To get them, though, you have to do something that the world is incapable of doing. You have to have faith. Without faith, you can't do it. Without the Holy Spirit in, there's no power to believe these things. They're nuts. Because the ways of God are foolishness to the world, but the ways of the world are foolish to us. We have to live by faith. Now, I want to kind of take you forward from that moment where I recommitted my life to God through Christ. And I'll do it quickly. I have been looking for work for five months, and the pastor at my church called me. Or no, actually, I went to him and said, God's not hearing my prayers because nothing's happening, so you're a preacher. You pray and tell me what he says because I need an answer. Just made sense to me. And he said, Steve, have you ever thought about coming to work for the church? Man, that took me right back to that very first experience in that early church because I wanted to be in the church. I wanted to work in the church. I wanted to commit my life to God. I, it didn't happen because of the people I was with. But now suddenly I was being offered the opportunity to come back and work in the church. I said yes. It paid me $8,600 a year. I was used to making a lot more than that. But I said yes. Within a few weeks, I got a job at a bearing manufacturer. Now it was back to my salary. I'd gone from no work to a full-time job and a part-time job and all the stresses that come with such. But here's what happened. The, the, the fire in my belly for work, the shipping of widgets, was gone. It had kind of died with that old identity. I was in trouble. 
I had to have a job and I could function, I could get through it, but I didn't have a real passion for it anymore. My passion was for the church. My passion was for being a pastor. The problem was that I hadn't been a really good Christian very long, and even though I had been in the church for 30 years, but this change in me made me feel like if I'm going to be a pastor in the church, by the way, it was an administrative pastor. That's what you do with engineers. Don't get them in the pulpit, but give them books. They'll work with it. <clears throat> but if I was going to be a pastor, I needed to learn the scriptures, right? So I set my mind on a plan where I was going to go to seminary to learn the scriptures so that I wouldn't be telling you what I think, but I would rather be telling you what God thinks in my interaction with folks, right? So here's where faith begins to take over in my life, right? About a year and a half into that, I'm starting into seminary, and the church fires me. There's a story there, but I'll let it for another day, right? So now I'm in seminary. I'm trying to pursue what I thought was a pretty good plan, but there's no church to be a pastor in. I'm just kind of out here on my own. I'm mowing the grass, figuring out how am I going to make up that 8600 bucks a year. <laughs> a year. And, and I don't know, it's not an audible voice, but I hear, call Eric. Eric. I knew who he was talking about. Eric Jontley was my supervisor when I worked down in South Carolina. He had come up to Harrisburg. He was an engineering manager here locally. I thought I hadn't talked to Eric for a couple of years, so I'll give him a call. I gave him a call. I said, Eric, I don't know, man. I'm just, can you use any help? He said, Steve, you won't believe this. I'm looking right now at a contract with a, with a design company. They want 25 bucks an hour to do design. Can you do it for me for that amount? Yeah, I can do that. And he sent me a laptop the following day with what I needed to get started. And for four years, I had a contract with that company that paid my bills while I went to seminary. That was an exciting opportunity. Now, that was good, but then something else kind of bad happened. Even though I'm working out of the house and I've got this wonderful contract, I can bill as many hours as I want, our family blew up. My daughter went off the rails. It's heartbreaking. It was, you know, you, you guys have had kids. You know sometimes it doesn't go like you planned, right? But God in his grace had positioned me to work out of the house with flexible hours so that I could be a really good dad and a really good husband like I wanted to be many, many years ago because of the experiences that I had in Christ. And we navigated those difficult years in ways which so much taught me about the love of God and how he works. Now, the contract dried up, and I didn't have a job. But there was this thing called chaplaincy in the workplace. And I had met a man many years ago on a ship in a cruise who was now leading that chaplaincy in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I lived. Called Luke. Called Luke, said, hey, Luke, you need any help? I got a little bit of work experience. I got a little bit of Bible under my belt. Can I do this job with you? He says, Steve, you don't know how much I need you. My full-time guy just quit. I need somebody to backfill him. Boom, I'm in as a chaplain now. Huh? And it was so cool because what I learned as a dad with a parent, my wife was upset, I was upset, my daughter was unusual. But what I learned in that experience so much prepared me to be a chaplain. Right? I'm experiencing God in some of the worst days of my life. And as a chaplain, what you do is find yourself up against people experiencing the worst days in their lives. And what are you trying to do? Get them connected with God. 
that somehow in the midst of that misery, they might experience from him the grace to overcome it, like I had? And then the chaplaincy went on for 10 years, and they decided to move me back up here to Pennsylvania. And I no longer was a chaplain in the strictest sense. I was now a chaplain boss. And I didn't get to do the things that I loved to do, and some changes were made, and I felt this stirring, like, maybe I need to move on from chaplaincy. And i got to tell you something. If there's any group that I identified with, it was chaplains. You know what makes them so cool? They're not in it for themselves. They really are in it for you. They come alongside of you. They don't judge you. They listen to you. They understand the aches of this world. They also understand how those aches are meant to draw us into a deeper relationship with God. And when you come around a bunch of people like that, for the first time in my life, I felt like I am with my people. They're like me. We're like one another. We're not all about you be in my group. We're all about how do we manifest God to the world in ways in which it's not about wanting them for us, but wanting them for him. I, you want the best for people, and you just got to get to the point where you know it's not you. It's him. We are in Christ living to God, bringing God to others by encouraging them toward him and not to us. And that's the real key of all this. I got restless in my role. I had another thing that was wooing me. They wanted me to open up a franchise and work with Christian business leaders. I mean, seriously, the substance of this whole business model was have meetings. And there's one thing I hate, it's meetings. But that was the thrust of it. I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. But my walk with God has often been, do it even if you don't want to do it, just trust me. And so I did it. I hoped that it would fail so I could just kind of go back and do something normal, but it didn't. God blessed it, right? And now, honestly, today, I, 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 I left the franchise, and I do this on my own, and it really is all about the very same thing. I am just living out my life in Christ as I am being pointed to God, pursuing righteousness, and all I'm doing is working with folks that they might do the same. I have, I have no concerns about the byproduct. I don't care if they like me or they don't like me. I don't fit into their group anyway. In fact, is I don't want to strive to fit into their group because I know what that's done to me and I'm not going to do it again. And I hope you will join me in that. We have to live to God. We, we have to pursue righteousness. If you're struggling over what that means, all that really means is that somehow or another, we have to focus on the rewards that come with righteousness and not, not be ashamed about them. If you want to measure how you're progressing, just pull from the fruit of the Spirit. You know, are you loving? Are you more patient? Are you more in self-control? Are you, are you? That's your metric. That's the stuff that you really want to pursue to know if you are making progress along the path of righteousness. And look, stop sinning. It takes up the capacity. If you choose to sin, it takes up a block of space in the soul that it doesn't allow for more of Christ. you got to not want to do that because the most important thing to you is just more of him for you. You are never, never more yourself than when you are completely lost in him. 
And we want to be lost in him because of the value we derive from that, the reward that comes with it. The great faith chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews, begins talking about this. And at the very end of the chapter, the writer talks about Moses. And he, he, he goes down this path with regard to Moses. He talks about, uh-oh, Hebrews 11. Remember Moses um, and how he was with Pharaoh and then he left Pharaoh. And at the end of 11, it goes something like this in verses 24 and following. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured, endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see what's going on there? Moses knew there was a better place than being in the company of the Pharaoh. And he left. And his faith was based upon the reward that comes on the heels of that faith. They're not like the way that the world measures rewards. They're better. And they're all in Christ. This is really the thrust of what Paul is saying there in verses 16 and 17. My righteous one, you and me, will live by faith, we will walk in a newness of life. Father, I thank you for this group. I pray, Lord, your blessings upon us. I ask, dear God, that, that somehow in all of this, by your Holy Spirit, you have touched each of us individually where we are and drawn us into a closer, more intimate relationship with you as a result. Lord, we know that that there's only one identity that we must strive for, and it's an identity in you through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might truly be able to live to you through him. And we just ask, God, you would move us along that trajectory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing this last song?